anyways, all right, so Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We're back in the book of Revelation. We have been in the book of Revelation actually for several months. We took a break to, to focus on a parenting series that we felt like God uh, would have for our church. And so uh, this morning, we're going to pick back up for the next three weeks in Revelation chapter 4. It's only 11 verses. And so I want to I just remind you of a couple of things as we get into Revelation. Maybe you're newer to our church. Maybe you've forgotten Hey, we've been in Revelation for about 30 sermons. Uh, let me remind you that the reason, a couple of the reasons why we're in this portion of Scripture, Revelation is one of those books in the Bible that a lot of people are uh, maybe uncertain about. Sometimes they're scared to read it. Uh, sometimes they don't think you can actually even understand it. Uh, I would remind us this morning that, that every Christian needs all of God's Word, not just select portions of God's Word. As a matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And so God gives us the totality of His Word for specific things, for doctrine, so that we, we know what is right, so, so reproof, so that we know what we're falling short in our life and our walk with God how to get corrected, and how to stay right with the Lord. And, and that includes all of the Bible, not just select portions that we're comfortable with or we're familiar with. God, God's given us the entirety of the Scripture for us to know Him. And so, and so we as Christians need to appreciate the entire Bible. When we understand the entire Bible, God gives us comfort through the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, in Romans 15 and verse 4, Paul says the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And as we study the book of Revelation, man, there are some things in there that are very, very interesting. There may be some things that even seem scary, but for you as a believer in Christ, God will give you comfort and patience and hope of things that are going to happen. You can have assurance that God's Word is true. You don't have to hope in, in other things that give you false hope or false comfort. Your hope can actually come from the Word of God. Your comfort can come from the Word of God. And then thirdly, we, we're going to study the book of Revelation, and it, and it is a book of prophecy. But listen, our understanding of prophecy, God gives us prophecy so that we can become more holy. Uh, and, and, and listen, 1 John 3, and I know these aren't on the screen, but just, just listen. 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, John writes, he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And can I just tell you that, listen, that's going to be an amazing day when we see Christ face to face. But before that day happens, you can see Christ clearly as he is in the very words of God. And because of that, because you are going to be able to see him as he is now through the eyes of faith, well, it ought, to, it ought to motivate us and position us to be more like him now. Because when we see him, we're going to be like him. We're going to get a glorified body. We'll be, we'll be out of this sin suit for all of eternity. But man, when you come to the book of Revelation, you see Christ like you don't see him in any other portion of Scripture. You don't see the babe in the manger. What you see is Christ as God Almighty. You don't see the servant of servants, but you see Christ ruling with a rod of iron in the book of Revelation. 
In his earthly ministry, Christ actually suffered at the hands of his creation, and that just blows my mind. But in the book of Revelation, God himself righteously judges all of creation. We see him as he is. And so, and so when we see him as he is, it ought to make us desire to be like him and to make us holy and to make us right and righteous with him. And, and that ought to motivate us. And so as we get into chapter 4 this morning, that will be especially true concerning the topic of the next three weeks. Because Revelation chapter 4 is all about one specific theme, the throne of God. It is all about the throne of God. And as we open the pages of Revelation chapter 4, let me just remind you that John the Apostle is physically on the Isle of Patmos. He's, he's being exiled for his faith in Christ, for the word of God and for the testimony of Christ. He'd been banished. And so, and so you know, approximately 100 AD, John is banished to the Isle of Patmos physically. But God tells us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 that John is spiritually on the Lord's day. And, and so he's two places at once. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And God's perspective, that John's perspective based on what God has him experiencing and seeing and, and experiencing, that is the key to understanding all of the book of Revelation. And we've, we've covered all this in detail in the past. And so let me just encourage you, man, listen, I'm trying to catch us up to speed for 30, for 30 sermons this morning with, with this introduction. Please go back. If some of this is like, man, what are you actually saying? Please go back and find the previous sermons and get, get some time invested in listening and watching those. Because John's position, as, as we open the book of Revelation, gives us the key to understanding the book. He is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And God tells him to write the things that you have seen in the past, and the things that are presently, and the things that, will sh that shall be hereafter, future. And so, and so the book of Revelation can be divided systematically into three sections. What, what has been in the past, prophetically, from John's perspective, and we studied that through these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And then, and then there's some things that John is experiencing presently on the day of the Lord, and then there's some things that are going to be future. And so, again, all of that is repeat. And, and this morning, that's not the time or the place to, to rehash that foundationally. That's already been established. And so I just want to tell you, man, John's perspective is unique. It gives us clarity in the book of Revelation. It's not a book that's, that's hard to understand. It's, it's actually, with study, it's actually easy to put together the way God intended us to put it together. And so this morning, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to get into two verses this morning. And uh, we'll need every ounce of time that we have. And so let's look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let me read the text. I'll pray for us. And then we're going we're gonna to do a lot of Bible study this morning. So Revelation 4 and verse 1. The Bible says, after this, and, and you need to ask the question, after what? After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning, God. I, I can in no way uh, communicate 
what needs to be communicated from your word, Father. I'm a weak, frail man, uh, and Lord, in my wisdom and understanding, there's just no way to, to, to understand your book. But I do pray that your Holy Spirit, God, uh, would help and, and guide and, and lead as we study, as we compare Scripture with Scripture. God, we want to we see the significance of the throne this morning. And Father, help us to, to, to believe what your word says. And God, may we learn some things today. And based on what we've learned, God, make it, would you make us desire to be holy? As, as we see you as you are in all of your glory. God, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, point number one in your notes, we're going we're gonna to hit this running this morning. The theme of this entire chapter is the throne. And the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is the location, the location of the throne of God. Because John says in verses one and two, after this, I looked and behold, a door was open. And he says very specifically, that door was open in heaven. And later on, he says, a throne was set in heaven in verse 2. And so make no mistake, what John is seeing, he is seeing firsthand. He is there in person. And, and we have more that we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. But listen, John is seeing firsthand what he's seeing about the throne of God, very literally, spiritually, even though his body physically was on the Isle of Patmos, he is absolutely where this throne of God is. And, and so we need to establish a principle of Bible study as we begin this morning because, because we want to talk about where this throne is located. But we have to understand a key biblical principle in order to really position it properly. And so here's the key principle that we need to understand. God is the God of threes in the Bible. And this, if you've been through ministry tools and training, if you've been through some of our, our Bible uh, curriculum here, you understand that, that God is a God of threes. God is systematic. Everything in creation breaks down to a system of threes. Let me prove it to you. First John chapter 5 and verse 7, the Bible says that there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are... Are one, And what you have is the doctrine of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Three in one. And, and so God is the pattern for all of creation. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, God says that the invisible things of Him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. That's kind of weird. Wait a second. You mean I can... See invisible things. Yes. How can I do that? Look at the verse. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so God himself is the pattern for all of creation. And if God is three in one, and, and all of creation is going to have God's fingerprint on it, everything is going to break down into a system of threes. You say, I don't believe that. Okay, well, I mean, okay, like, like matter exists in three states, right? It's solid, liquid, and gas. And you say, well, you haven't been on Google lately because there's a fourth state of matter called plasma. And I actually have been on Google for a minute. And what's interesting is that nobody in scientific community, they'll, they'll even say about the, the fourth state of matter that plasma is often misunderstood and it doesn't freely exist under normal conditions on earth. But the things that do exist in normal conditions on earth, the states of matter are solid, liquid, and gas. And it's a system of threes. 
Man, the kingdoms of this earth are broken down into threes. You have an animal kingdom, a vegetable or plant kingdom, and a mineral kingdom. Time is broken down into three. You have past, present, and future. Music is broken down into three. It's melody, harmony, and rhythm. Environment itself is broken down into air, sea, and land. Even man is broken down into a body, a soul, and a spirit. Why? Because God is three. And God has established a pattern in all of creation. And and listen, John is in heaven and he is seeing this throne, but he's seeing a consistent God. And and, and this this principle of three is important for us to, to really understand where John's location is and where this throne's location is. And so and so what I need to do is take you, take you through a very uh, quick run of the book of Genesis chapter 1. Can, can we do that? Can you just turn back to Genesis chapter 1 real quick if you have a Bible? And I want to show you that God has established this, this pattern of three even in his physical creation. And as we see John standing before this throne in heaven, there's something unique that you and I need to learn about it. And, and so Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we're going we're gonna to... Re- run this course of three through the, the, the story of creation, Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, and, and, and listen, if you're counting this morning, that's a heaven, right? That, that is a heaven. That's one heaven. Go down to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. God said, Let there be a firmament... In the midst of the waters, those are the waters that you find in verse 2, this, this firmament. Let, let, let there be a division in, in these waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made a firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament, what did he call it? He called it what? He called it heaven. Wait a second. God already made heaven in verse 1. So there's a heaven... And, and then there was an earth, and then there were some waters, verse 2. But then God said, I want to take all those waters, and I want to divide those waters, and the middle of those waters, the firmament in the midst of those waters, I'm also going to call it what? And so now there's a heaven, and now there's another heaven that God has made by dividing waters. And, and God gives us a little more insight. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of where? Heaven, to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And he made the stars also. And where did he put those lights? In in heaven. And we would call that, what would we call it? Because we're, 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 I mean, let's be honest, we're Spacetown, right? I mean, some of you work for the people that send the rockets up into outer, outer space. And, and that's where the sun is and the moon is and that's where the stars are, right? And we call that outer space. God calls that, he calls it a heaven. And so there's a heaven that God created in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And now there's another heaven that's this firmament where the sun and the moon and the stars are. 
And God says he did that on the fourth day. That's very interesting. And then if you'll look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath light and the fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of... Now, where do the birds fly? Well, they fly in the sky. But listen, God says that thing's called a, a heaven. And, and so if you're, if you're quick on math, what we found is that in Genesis chapter 1, that there are how many heavens? There are three, man, and we're not violating Scripture. We're actually just believing what God says, that there is a heaven, and then there's a heaven that, that's this firmament where the stars and the moon and the, the, uh, the sun is, but then where the birds fly, we know the birds don't fly into space. They fly in the open firmament of heaven. The fowl fly in our atmosphere. And so even in Genesis chapter 1, God uses the pattern of himself to say that there are, there are actually three heavens. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, God comes back around and he says, thus the heavens and the earth are finished and all the host of them. And it is very interesting to me that, that as he opened the word of God and he said, in the beginning, God created the heaven singular and the earth. And as you go through Genesis chapter one, you find him finishing out the remaining heavens as we would understand them. What you find is a very interesting pattern, and here's where I wanted to get to this morning. As we study the Word of God, as we study the book of Genesis, as we study the rest of Scripture, we find that there are actually three heavens, God calls them heavens, in Genesis chapter 1. Now, don't check out and don't think I'm a cult, cultist and don't think, man, what kind of wacko are you? Because kind of, I already know what you're thinking right now. Wait, some cults teach something similar to that. So let's just stay with the Bible. How about that? And so let me give you the three heavens that we see out of Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to work from the top down, if you will. The third heaven is actually the place where God dwells. It's the abode of God. It's located above outer space, above the constellations, above the sun, above the, the moon, and above the stars, because God said so, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. But then the second heaven, as we move down, is what we would call outer space, and that's where all those celestial things are, the sun, the moon, the stars, the comets, all the other planets, all those things are in this firmament that God called heaven. And then the first heaven would be our atmosphere. It's where the birds fly, because God told us that in Genesis chapter 1. You say, man, that, you're taking creative liberty with the Word of God. Okay, well, I don't think so. And the reason why is because when we compare Scripture with Scripture, God confirms this same pattern all the way through the Bible. Let me show it to you. God confirmed it again in Psalm 148, one of the, one of the greatest psalms concerning the creation and the structure that God has put into place. Let's look at it. Psalm 148, verse 1, it says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the Lord from the heavens, plural, Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all ye angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. And so in verses 1 and 2, really, what you have is, is praise to God in the third heaven. Because His angels are there, His heavenly hosts are there, and He's in the heights. Are you guys okay with that? Everybody okay? Everybody's like, man, I showed up to Bible study this morning. I thought you were just going to preach at me. Now we're going to open the Bible. We're going to open the Bible. And so God, God establishes that, that he is worthy of praise in the third heaven because that's where he dwells. That's his abode. 
But listen, as you get to verse 3, God also says that he's worthy of praise from the second heaven. Look at verse 3. Praise ye him, sun and moon. We know where that stuff's at. Praise him, praise ye him, all ye stars of light. Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. And man, if we had time to to talk about that. You're going to need to buy me a cup of coffee, and we'll, we'll have some, some Bible study on that one. But, but God says there's still some waters that are above the second heaven. That's very interesting. Between the second and third heaven, God's made a decree concerning that. And, and again, we don't have time for that this morning. But you need to know that God in Psalm 148 also says that in the heavens where the sun and the moon and the stars dwell, God's worthy of praise. And then God even says in in verse 7 that God's worthy of praise from the first heaven. Look at verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons, all ye deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains. Those things are on the earth. And all the hills, the fruitful trees, all cedars, beasts, all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people. Well, that's where all that stuff's at. It's here. It, it, it has access to the first heaven. And God says, you know what? Well, God's worthy of praise even on this earth. Right. Amen. He's worthy of praise top to bottom, third, second, and first heaven. You say, well, I still don't believe you. Okay, well, well, well listen, God not only confirmed it in the Old Testament through the psalmist, but God confirmed it in the New Testament through the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says very clearly that, that, that when he had an out-of-body experience, and I'm not talking about your experience in the ballgame last night, okay? So uh, what I'm talking about is like a real experience. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1, he talks about this, this, this thing that he experienced personally. I believe that this is when he got stoned in the book of Acts and was thought to be dead. It says in verse 1, it's not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such a one called up to the the third heaven. Well, that's very interesting. Paul knew exactly where he was. I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I, I cannot tell, God knoweth how that he, caught, he was caught up into paradise. He was caught up into paradise, and he heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. And can I just tell you, listen, Paul, Paul had an out-of-body experience, but he was, it was real. And where Paul went was to the third heaven. The Bible says he was caught up to the third heaven, because that's the direction, by the way, of the third heaven. It's always up. And God landed him right in his presence. And man, listen, when Paul was in the Lord's presence, man, he heard words. And those words, he says in verse 7, were an abundance of revelations. And they were so wonderful that God said, you can't tell anybody. And that's that's amazing to me. And, and, And by the way, if you study Paul's life after that incident... After he was stoned, and after God allowed him to come back into his body, that dude was never the same. Let me tell you why he was never the same. Because he saw the throne, and he heard the words. And you see, 
You see, when you really see Christ for who he is, and you really hear God's words for what they are, your life will never be the same. You see, that's the problem in modern Christianity. Most of us have never seen Christ as who he is. And we've never heard his words. I didn't say we didn't come to church. I didn't say we didn't fill in the blanks. But what I'm saying is our life has never been transformed because the truth is we've never seen by faith who Christ is according to the Word of God. We've never visited the third heaven. We've never spent time seeing who God is and what His Word says about Him. And because of that and because of us not heeding and hearing His words, well, our, our life isn't transformed. And we wonder why we struggle. We wonder why we struggle in ministry. We wonder why we struggle in relationship. We wonder why we struggle in service. The truth is because we've never seen Christ. Because Paul was transformed. He was different. He was changed forever because he saw it and he heard it and he experienced it. You say, well, man, I wish God would just take me to the third heaven. Listen, you got something even greater than Paul's experience. You have the written word of God. You have the written word of God that you don't need an out-of-body experience. You have the authority of God's words that are absolutely pure and true. It is the perfect revelation from God. You can go to the third heaven anytime you want. The problem is we just don't want to. So here's the point. We need to know from the Word of God that heaven is a, is a physical place. And it has a very specific geographical location. It's a real place. Heaven isn't just a state of mind. It isn't what you think it is or what I think it is. According to the biblical record, it is a real place that exists. And John is in the third heaven. And what he sees in that third heaven is a throne. And man, it's all about that throne. I'll just, I'll make a statement and you'll catch it probably in about six months. But can I just tell you the entire Bible is about that throne. That's what it's about. The whole book is about the throne. It's about a king and a kingdom. It's about Christ, kingdom, glory. And who is going to sit on that throne and receive honor and glory and blessing and power from all of creation. That's what the whole thing's about. That's what it's all about. And so we see the location of this throne. i got a ton more references, but we don't have time this morning because you're not listening fast enough. So let me move to the second point because we've got to get your notes filled in, right? Let me show you number two, the invitation to the throne. The invitation to the throne. And so if you go back to verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, here it is, Come up hither. And I will show thee things that must be hereafter. And again, we have to look at that phrase in verse 1. After this, I looked. Well, after what? Well, after chapters 2 and 3 specifically. John has just given us two chapters that deal with seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. And after God finished writing those, after Christ finished writing those seven letters to those seven churches, the last church of which is the church of Laodicea, those seven churches are real historical churches, but they also represent the entirety of church history. 
with Laodicea being the last stage of church history. After this, there was a door opened in heaven, and there was an invitation, come up hither. That's very interesting. That's very unique. That the, the seven periods of church history, the seven letters to the seven churches had ended, and now Christ says, and John says, after this, the door was opened in heaven. And, and can I just tell you, through the rest of the book of Revelation, the word church is not mentioned again. It's mentioned one time in Revelation chapter 22, where, where, where basically the angel is saying, I'm testifying these things to the churches. But there's no specific instruction given to any church past Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And if you've been with us for our study, we say that we would say that God deals with the church in Revelation 2 and 3. But after that, God has a lot of other things that are going to happen in his timeline of prophecy, including the tribulation and including the second coming of Christ. And so in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, God shows us what's happening in heaven, including and after the rapture of the church. And in Revelation 6 through chapter 18, God shows us what's happening on the earth after the rapture of the church. Because John, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and here's the key in your notes, John pictures for us a type or a picture of the rapture of the church. At the end of the church age, at the end of the church period, a door opens and there's a voice of a trumpet talking with John, and the voice says, come up hither. Well, that's important. And as you study that phrase in the Bible, that's a phrase that's only found three times in the Bible. You say, why is that so important? Well, it's important because John gets taken up before the rest of the book of Revelation unfolds. And if you understand the, the book of Revelation and you understand the things that God, God is about to unveil in chapters 4 through chapter 19, God is going to reveal a fourfold revelation of the tribulation period leading up to the second coming of Christ. He's going to show you four different ways in which the tribulation is going to happen. You say, well, that's weird. Why would God show us four different ways of the tribulation period leading up to his second coming? Well, he did that with his first coming. And the four ways he did it was called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, didn't he give you four accounts of his first coming? He did. And each of those accounts is unique. It's specific. It has a unique application. God's not wasting white paper on, on your Bible. Actually, every one of those four ap applications of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have something specific and unique about Christ's first coming. And as we study the book of Revelation, and we're probably going to get there at some point. Actually, the rapture will probably happen before we get there. But by God's grace, if we're still here and we study this thing out, we're going to see there's four different views of the same event because God is a consistent God. And so what we see in this phrase, come up hither, is a picture. It's a picture. It's a type. It's, a, it's an illustration of a rapture, of a, a catching up of God's people from this earth and before judgment. And so let's just run that phrase through the Bible because we want to be good students of the Bible and then we're going to make application and we'll be done. This, this morning, it really sets us up for the next two weeks. And so this morning, let's look at the three raptures concerning come up hither because that phrase is only found three times in the Bible. The first time it's found is in Proverbs 25 and verse 7. 
And the Bible says, For better is it that it should be said unto thee, Come up hither, than thou shouldest be put lower in thy presence of the prince whom thy eyes have seen. And, and listen, there was a, a rapture, if you will, of Old Testament saints at the resurrection of Christ. That, that Proverbs 25 and verse 7 prophetically points to Christ's resurrection, and there were a group of people that were taken up after Christ's resurrection. You find it in Matthew 27, verse 52. It says, The graves were opened, many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared to many. Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ led captivity captive. He took His people at his resurrection and ascension, the people that were saints before the, the death, burial, and resurrection, he took them to heaven. They couldn't go to heaven before that. They were in Abraham's bosom, Luke chapter 16. So this come up hither, the first instance, is, is, is tied to the Old Testament saints at their resurrection. And the second time that you find that phrase is in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And it's John. And listen, John is an apostle whom Jesus loved. John is the beloved apostle who put his head on Christ's breast. Man, he had an intimate, personal walk and relationship. It was so different than any other apostle. John is unique, and, and, and it's John that hears the voice, come up hither, and John pictures for us, in type, a rapture of, of New Testament believers at the end of the church age. You know, God tells us in, in 1 Thessalonians, and I don't think I have this one on the screen, but, but, but listen, many of you know this passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the resurrection. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And that's, that's the rapture of the church to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's like God at the end of this church age is going to say, come up hither, and, and man, we're going to go. We're out of here, and, and maybe it is today. And, and if, it, if you have reservation about that in your heart and life, like, like you don't want that to happen today, I want to ask you maybe prayerfully to do inventory and ask why. Why would you not want to see Christ today? And why would you not want Christ to be one step further to receiving all the power and glory and honor and blessing that He deserves? Uh, what is it that is keeping you from rejoicing in the throne of His glory? Maybe it's personal sin. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's, man, God, don't don't come back until I get married or don't come back until I have kids or don't come back until I get my new car or don't come back... Man, do you realize how selfish that really is, right? Man, our, our, our desire ought to be, I mean, we just sang songs about this this morning. And Cody and I didn't even get together, man. He just knew we were in Revelation 4 and, and kind of the Spirit of God just kind of let him know that we need to sing about seeing the Lord face to face. Man, I hope we sang that with a pure heart and a pure motive because, because man, it, it's a day that's coming soon. And man, we ought to rejoice in that. We ought to expect that. We ought to be excited about that. The last come up hither you find is in Revelation 11 and verse 12. It says, They heard a voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And when you get to Revelation chapter 11, 
what you find is that this group of people is a group of what's called tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation. Revelation 11 and verse 15 gives us the timeline that, that it's really at the moment that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. And my goal this morning is not to, to exhaust all of those references, but it's just to show you that phrase only shows up three times in the Bible. And every time it shows up, God has a unique group of people, his people, that are being caught up, that are being taken. And so this invitation that John is experiencing in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, devotionally for us, it comes right on the heels of Revelation 2 and 3. God's done with those seven churches. Man, he's, he's wrote his last epistle, and now a door opens, and this voice of a trumpet begins to speak, and it's come up hither. And John's there immediately. He's there immediately. And that's what the, the rapture of the church is going to be like. Okay, and then, and then lastly, let's make application, and then we'll get up out of here. Let me show you the exclusivity of the throne. So John, in verse 2, says immediately, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Which heaven? Third, Third heaven. A throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So here's the key in your notes. There's only one throne in heaven, and there's only one person sitting on it. Now listen. Let, let me give you some scripture to back that up, but here's where the application is going to come in in our life and your life. We may know that, we may know that positionally or doctrinally. The question is, do we know that practically? Do we know it practically? Isaiah 66 and verse 1 says, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where's the house that ye build unto me, and where's the place of my rest, Right? I mean, I mean, heaven itself can't contain God. I mean, it, it's that whole third heaven is his throne. Matthew 5 and verse 34, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. And man, listen, the, the person on the throne is the one that's ruling. And the person on the throne is the one reigning. And the one on the throne is an authority. But listen, can I... Can I just quickly share with you that there's somebody in the Bible that didn't like the idea of a complete monarchy. One king to rule all. And, and before you jump to conclusion, let me just tell you, it was Lucifer. It was Satan, right? And the problem that Satan had is, is truthfully the same problem that we have. And I'm going to give you the problem so you can fill in the blank and I'm going to prove it to you. The problem is Satan's strategy is co-regency. Because Satan is okay with God having his throne. Satan just wants to have a throne too. And as long as God has his throne and Satan has his throne, then everything is okay in Satan's life. Look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. And again, this is a prophetic passage. It's powerful that talks about the fall of Lucifer. It says in verse 12, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How thou art cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Now, we know the stars of God are the stars. Well, anyways, we, we don't have time. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation. I think we talked about a mount this morning when we were singing a little bit. 
In the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. Man, God's showing us from his word that Satan had a desire to elevate his throne into heaven. And he says in verse 13, I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. God, it's okay if you have a throne. I'm just going to sit there with you. And as long as I get to sit there with you, everything's okay. And can I just tell you that the, the same problem and strategy that Satan had many times falls in our own life, right? It's this issue of co-regency. It's the issue that, man, I know that Christ deserves all power and honor and glory and blessing and, and, and praise. Listen, I understand that. But let me get my throne in there too, God. Let me still have authority and my life, my circumstances, my family, my ministry, me, 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 me. Listen, Satan's desire wasn't to kick God off his throne. And listen, your desire and my desire isn't either. It's not either to kick him off his throne. But what it is, is to put two thrones in heaven. To have two people seated in authority instead of just one. Man, the Word of God just reveals our heart and motive. And it shows us that just like the devil, man, co-regency in our life, have grace to hear this, it's satanic. Co-regency is satanic because there can only be one God. <laughs> because there's only one throne. And there's only one that can sit on the throne. And man, for, for us as believers in Christ, and maybe you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, can I, can I encourage you? Listen, you, you want to you wanna see the throne of God as a believer in Christ, not as an unbeliever. Because that throne, is as, as much as it is a throne of life and forgiveness and grace, it's also a throne of judgment. John was able to stand before the Lord and see that throne because, because he was forgiven. He'd been bought with the blood of Christ. He was a believer in Christ. But John made an observation that we all have to make. That, man, knowing that throne and where it is and, and, and where the position of that throne is in this universe, but also the position of where that throne is in my heart and life, it, it has to be right. It, there can only be one on the throne. And I know in my life that's a constant battle, and I'm sure it is in your life too. And, and when we try to make provision for co-regency, we're playing right into the devil's handbook. And we just need to learn. Christ gets all the glory. He deserves the seat of authority. It's his throne. Let me just read you a few more verses about the throne, and then we'll pray. I just, I just want you to understand that, listen, every time you see somebody in the Bible, when they get before that throne, man, they see the Lord himself sitting on it. They never see themselves sitting on it. 1 Kings 22, verse 19, there was a prophet named Micaiah. I got a nephew named after him. And it says this, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him and on his right hand and on his left. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 to 5, it says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two, with twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. With twain he did fly. One cried one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And man, Isaiah is seeing this. And he's seeing the one on the throne that deserves the glory and that's holy. And he didn't say, how about you get off the throne and let me sit there? That's not what he said. Man, when he saw it, he said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man, when we see Christ on the throne, we see Him in all His glory. And when we see Him on the throne, we see us in all our failure and in all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And it positions us right before His throne. Does that make sense? You guys okay with that? Man, it's all about His throne. This morning, I just wanted to establish, man, that throne's real. And God shows us in His Word where it's at. And God shows us in His Word that there's only one throne And there's only one that sits on it. And the question for us is, do we regard that in our heart and our relationship with God? Is he really on the throne? Or are we really really interested in co-regency? Do we really want to have it our way too? And man, if we do, let's humble ourselves before the Lord, right? The, The problem is, if we feel like that, we probably have never seen from the Word of God that throne. And so I hope we can see it by faith today. All right. So, so let me pray for us. And, and man, my prayer for me and my prayer for you is, hey, number one, you, you just need to know that, that that's real, man. Man, God gets all his glory. And when we sing, when we pray, I, I hope you do this. If you've never done it before, maybe you'll do it after today. Man, when you spend time with God, just imagine yourself being in his presence. Before that throne. And man, when you sing to him, when you pray, when you open the word of God, can you imagine yourself like Paul being in the third heaven, hearing those words from Christ himself? And man, could you be like Isaiah and get really honest about your sin and shortcomings because you see Christ clearly for who he is? And settle the issue in your heart, man. There is no co-regency. Christ has all the authority in my life because he's the king. He's the king. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. God, thank you for, uh, man, just a a long journey through your word today. But 